1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: I want to thank everyone for joining us here this morning, uh, both live here at Heritage and those uh, watching the live stream out there. Um, one thing I'll remind everyone first: uh, please, if you have your cell phone, please silence it. Uh, when we get later to the question and answer period, um, please wait for um, helpers to bring around the uh, microphones, then say your uh, your name, where you're from, and then ask your question. That way, that people watching the live stream can hear uh, follow along with the question and answer for that. So today we've got a great group of panelists uh, talk about some uh, Navy's. 2020 budget request and the uh, new shipbuilding plan. Just over a month ago, the Navy released its fiscal year 2020 uh, president's budget request, followed quickly by its updated 30-year shipbuilding plan. Both of these documents included significant decisions impacting naval force structure, the cancellation of an aircraft carrier refueling overhaul, the delay of two amphibious ship programs, and the Navy's future large service combatant program, the accelerate re- accelerated retirement of several guided missile cruisers, and mine countermeasure ships. The Navy has stated that these hard choices were the result of a need to prioritize the development of next-generation capabilities, such as direct-energy weapons, unmanned systems, artificial intelligence, and hypersonic missiles over traditional large naval platforms like aircraft carriers and amphibious warships. These budget decisions have created much controversy and more questions and answers from Congress and many defense analysts. While most agree the Navy needs to develop and field improved technologies and weapons for their turn to great power competition, some argue that making major force structure changes prior to the completion of the Navy's new force structure assessment later this year is premature. Not to be overshadowed by the challenges to ship construction, the new shipbuilding plan also illustrates the rising cost of sustaining a growing fleet that will rapidly eclipse the cost to build the fleet. Do these hard budget choices signal a new direction for the fleet? or Are they simply the result of insufficient funding to increase the lethality of the fleet, build capacity, and restore readiness? My expert panelists today include Mr. Ron O'Rourke, Specialist in Naval Affairs, Defense Policy, and Arms Control Section at the Congressional Research Service. Mr. Mr. O'Rourke is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University, from what he received his bachelor's and master's in international studies. Since 1984, he's been a naval analyst at the National Research Service. He's an expert on Navy shipbuilding programs, naval force structure, and other naval issues. He's a respected expert on these issues and has testified before Congress on numerous occasions, as well as publishing several journal articles on naval issues. Dr. Eric Labs is the senior analyst for naval weapons and force uh, forces con- at the Congressional Budget Office. A graduate of Tus University, he received his doctorate in political science from Massachusetts in- Institute of Technology. He has been with the Congressional Budget Office since 1985 specializing in issues related to the procurement, budgeting, and sizing of the forces for the Department of the Navy. Dr. Labs has testified before Congress several times and published numerous art studies under the auspices of the Congressional Budget Office as well as numerous articles and papers in academic journals and conferences. Mr. Brian Clark is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and, like myself, a retired submariner. Prior to joining CSBA, he was a special assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations and director of his Commander Actions Group. There, he led the development of Navy strategy and implemented new initiatives in electromagnetic spectrum operations, undersea warfare, expeditionary operations, and personnel and radius management. He has conducted numerous analyses and written extensively on naval force structure and the impact of emerging technologies on the future fleet. Next, Dr. Jerry Hendricks is the vice president of the Telemus Group, and is a retired maritime patrol naval flight officer with extensive experience in strategy, force structure planning, carrier strike group operations, and a submarine warfare. He has held posts with senior staffs, including the chief of naval operations executive panel, the Secretary of Defense Office of Force Development, and the Office of Net Assessment. He has written several papers and articles on Navy force structure and shipbuilding. Last, but certainly not least, is Mr. Brian McGrath, Managing Director of the Fairbridge Group and Deputy Director of the Center for American Sea Power at the Hudson Institute. Retired Service Warfare Officer, Brian commanded the Guided Missile Destroyer USS Buckley. His final duty in uniform was as team lead and primary author of the U.S. Navy's 2007 Maritime Strategy, A Cooperative Strategy for 21st Century Sea Power. He has written extensively on the subject of naval shipbuilding and force structure. I'd be remiss if I did not highlight the fact that Brian is a 1987 graduate of the now 2019 NCAA Men's Basketball Championship winning University of Virginia. i have to say I'm very surprised you're not winning uh, your university's colors here today, Brian. Um, and for those of you who follow Brian on Twitter, you know it was his zealous support that willed his team to victory this year. Um, Ron, if you will start off with your remarks.
1: Thank you. They're going to queue up my presentation here in just a second. And what I'll be doing is uh, giving you a scene setter presentation, and then um, uh, Eric will go in and do a deeper analytical dive on some of the numbers associated with the request, and then we'll move on for more thematic comments from the other three speakers on the panel. Um, so let's get started with the presentation. I'm going to review the five-year plan and the 30-year plan, and then some issues arising from it. Uh, Here is the five-year plan. The new construction ships are at the top. There's 55 of them. That's an average of 11 per year. That's a little more than what you would need to uh, maintain a 355-ship fleet on a steady-state basis, but it's designed not simply to maintain it, but to help get you up to that number, so you're a little bit more than the steady-state rate here. Uh, significantly, in the uh, presentation of the Navy's budget this year, they presented not just the five-year shipbuilding plan, but this five-year acquisition plan for unmanned vehicles, including uh, some large unmanned vehicles. The very first data line there is the very large unmanned surface vehicle. And then in the next group, the bottom one is the extra-large unmanned vehicle. These are a major new element in the Navy's intended future fleet architecture that we will be talking about. I think, some more during our uh, event today. Uh, so it's significant to see this presentation, not just the new ships. Uh, when you look at the five-year shipbuilding plan, there are certain points that arise in connection with it in terms of differences from the prior year. Uh, the next aircraft carrier, the CVN 81, is now listed as an FY20 ship as a consequence of the two-ship by that Congress authorized last year. A third Virginia-class attack submarine has been added to the FY20 20 column, and if all three of those ships are funded, it will be the first time since more than 30 years that we will have funded three attack submarines, I think, in a single year. Uh, We had a third destroyer accelerated from later in the up to earlier in the up. We had a second um, new frigate added into the FY21 column, so they'll get up to the two-per-year rate one year sooner than under last year's submission. Uh, There is a major new surface combatant, a cruiser or destroyer-like ship in the Navy's shipbuilding plan. It's just outside the fit-up in FY25. That's a five-year acceleration from previous plans of getting that ship starting in FY30. As supporters of amphibious ships have noted, amphibious ships have been somewhat de-emphasized in this A five-year plan. Uh, The LPD-17 Flight 2 profile has been reduced, and a large amphibious assault ship that has been out in the FY24 column has not been accelerated to an earlier year. There's been a reshuffling of some auxiliary ships. The next two items on that list, they're both built out at NASCO. And as I mentioned, there's an emphasis here in this new budget, not just on building new manned ships, but on these large or extra-large unmanned or optionally manned platforms. That's the 30-year shipbuilding plan, if you can resolve the numbers that are up in the top. And uh, in this 30-year plan, as well as the one from a year ago, there's also a 30-year acquisition profile for uh, sea lift and specialized mission auxiliary ships, because the Congress has uh, expressed an interest in the recapitalization of that fleet and how the Navy is planning for it. These ships at the bottom. Uh, do not count toward the quoted size of the Navy. They are the other ships in addition to the Battle Force ships, but the Congress is interested in knowing about the recapitalization of these ships as well. Uh, This is another version of the 30-year shipbuilding plan. I don't expect you to resolve the details here. It's just so that you'll recognize it when you see it. There are about 300 of these little colored-in square boxes. Each of those is a ship in the 30-year plan. And if you can see it, you'll also see some unfilled in uh, boxes that are like open picture frames. Those represent the Navy's idea of where you might be able to add additional ships to the 30-year shipbuilding plan above and beyond those that the Navy already plans if you are interested in doing it based on the Navy's understanding of industrial base capacity. So if you take the new ships and you factor in the retirements of the existing ships, you get the projected force levels that are summarized for the Navy in the upper chart and also projected force levels for these sea lift and specialized auxiliary ships that I was talking about earlier. And the Navy has put a blue box around the years when they get up to and maintain the 355 ships. Uh, these are those numbers in graphic form. The lower gray line is the projected size of the Navy under last year's 30-year shipbuilding plan. And there was some a dissatisfaction um, among observers on the Hill and elsewhere under last year's 30-year plan that it would not get up to 355 ships during any time in the 30-year period. The new plan does show that, and that's not um, only or even principally because of the new construction ships. It is the result to a large degree of a decision by the Navy to extend the service lives of all the DDG-51 destroyers, both the existing ones and the ones to be built in the future, out to an age of 45 years. That's what allows the Navy to get up to that total. This is the Navy's depiction of the funding requirements, and you'll see this chart later with one of our other speakers. The big beige block on the bottom on the left side is the funding requirement for Uh, the new ballistic missile submarine it gets up to a steady state requirement as you can see of about seven billion dollars per year when the shipbuilding budget was about 14 billion dollars a year as it was several years ago the idea that you would need seven billion per year just for the ssbn looked very daunting because it looked like it was going to occupy half the shipbuilding budget now that the shipbuilding budget is in the range of 23 or 24 billion dollars per year it does not loom proportionately as large. It is still a concern. It is still a source of pressure on the shipbuilding budget, but there are other major bricks in that pile as well, as you can see. Uh, from the green and the red, those are the surface combatants and the attack submarines. They occupy a certain amount of funding as well. Uh, we'll see more from Eric. This is Eric's version from last year's 30-year shipbuilding plan of the affordability situation as he and his colleagues at CBO reestimated. it. Eric will talk more about that in his segment, and in this case, the SSBNs are on the bottom in the black. Uh, When you compare the Navy and CBO estimates, it's important to remember that the Navy uh, and CBO are fairly close to one another in terms of estimated costs during the earlier years of the 30-year plan, but they tend to diverge over time, and there's two major reasons for that. One is there's a technical difference between CBO and the Navy in how to treat inflation. And that (coughs) difference compounds over time. And so the further into the future, you get the larger that wedge between CBO and the Navy uh, becomes for that reason. And the second reason is that there are some ships in the later years of the 30-year shipbuilding plan whose design is undefined. And there's more room for the Navy and CBO to come to differing views about what those ships might look like and, therefore, how much they might cost. Uh, Very significantly, uh, Congress has been a strong supporter of shipbuilding for a long, long time, basically for at least my entire 35 years of working as a naval analyst. But in more recent years, they have not only uh, supported the shipbuilding request, but they've consistently added to them. So Congress's uh, action on the request is the lighter blue bar, and this is a chart that Eric has prepared for his own reports that I'm stealing right here. And you can see that the lighter blue bar has been higher for every year of the last several years. And the difference may not look like that much looking at the graph, but in the more recent years, that's an addition of about $2 billion per year, year after year. And what's particularly notable about that is that these increases are happening during the years of the Budget Control Act, which was passed in August of 2011. So the 2012 column you see there was really more or less the beginning of that period. So all these plus-ups have been happening even in the presence of the limits on defense spending for the Budget Control Act. On this chart, the black line is the size of the Navy using the scale on the right. And the uh, colored wedges are uh, forms of uh, sustainability or operation support spending for that fleet using the scale on the left. And the Navy included this chart in its 30-year shipbuilding plan to sensitize people to the fact that it's not just about building new ships. You have to sustain them after you get them into the fleet. And there's a lot more discussion in this year's 30-year shipbuilding plan about sustaining that fleet, not just building it. And again, I think we'll be talking, and you'll see this slide again in one of the later presentations. So when you look at the 30-year shipbuilding plan, Uh, Some major points jump out. One is that you do get to the 355 number about 20 years earlier than what you would have under last year's 30-year plan. There are some ship retirements, particularly the Navy's decision to retire the aircraft carrier Harry Truman uh, early rather than refueling it. That has attracted attention. There is an emphasis, as I mentioned, on the sea lift and auxiliary ships and an emphasis uh, on sustaining and not just procuring ships. So what are some resulting issues that arise from uh, everything that I've done here? One is that in the discussion this year, there will be uh, a lot of uh, emphasis and interest in shipbuilding, but also uh, there is a lot of concern about the Navy's readiness situation and the material readiness of its surface ships and also its attack submarines. And a dollar that you spend on one of these things will not be available uh, for the other. And so people will be looking at how to balance the Navy's investments. The debate we're having this year on Navy force structure is taking place in the context of how the Navy is reassessing its future force structure needs. Uh, They are scheduled by the end of this calendar year to report out a new force structure assessment that could change both uh, the 355 number, both with respect to the total number and to the composition. And they have dropped a lot of hints that there could be a change in the fleet architecture that could especially affect the surface force so that you'd have fewer large ships. More smaller ships and a third layer, a third new layer in that architecture of large unmanned surface vehicles. So we are discussing 355, but the 355 could change in total and composition. In terms of individual programs, and this is my last substantive slide, people will uh, and already have focused on the proposal to retire the Harry Truman early rather than giving it the refueling. Uh, They are tracking the completion status of the lead Ford-class carrier, the Ford itself. Uh, There is a decision by the Navy to refer to the the, uh, carrier uh, CBN-81 as an FY-20 ship rather than an FY-19 ship. That's not necessarily just an administrative issue. There is a matter of substance to that as well. Uh, They'll look at the Request for the third Virginia-class boat in the context of the industrial base showing certain strains of late in terms of its ability to ramp up to higher rates of attack submarine procurement. They'll look at the cruiser retirements and the extra destroyer. Uh, There's a lot of uh, interest in the uh, new frigate competition, the results of which are to be announced uh, in coming months. Um, and there will be, I think, some attention paid to the question of whether there should be additional procurement of LCSs in FY20, even though the Navy is not requesting any more uh, because the Navy has all the ones that the Navy uh, says it has a requirement for. And there will be attention paid to the amphibious shipbuilding programs. So that's my summary and scene setter. Uh Eric will now do a deeper dive on some of the uh, numbers that arise
2: analytically from this. Uh, thank you, Ron. That was a that was a great setup to the to the conversation today. And while I pull up my slides, I'll just well start by saying that the views I express here are my own, not those of the Congressional Budget Office. Um, I'll wait for the wait for the slides to come up. So uh, quickly, I'm going to cover sort of three broad topics. Uh, I want to look at sort of some of these more detailed changes that uh, uh, Ron was talking about in, in a little bit more uh, numerical fashion. I want to talk a little bit about the effects of some of these changes that the Navy is proposing on the industrial base, and then looking at sort of the long-term resource demands. Ron covered a lot of that. I'm going to sort of put that in, into some historical context. First of all, was one of the things that Ron mentioned, one of the major changes the, Ma- the Navy made in this year's shipbuilding plan with the retirement, uh, the planned retirement of the Harry S. Truman, an aircraft carrier, rather than refueling it, they would retire the ship in 2024. The impact of that uh, is shown graphically here on the Navy's carrier force structure. I actually show the years going well beyond the 30-year shipbuilding plan, actually out to 2080, because I want to show not only the effect that the retirement of the Truman does, taking it down to 10 aircraft carriers, and in some cases nine for a good part of the time between here and uh, 2035, but then also how long it actually would take under the Navy's own force structure assessment to get up to uh, 12 aircraft carriers. And they don't get there on a sustaining basis until about 2069. The second issue that also Ron mentioned was the... deferred or delayed procurement of uh, LPD-17 Flight 2 amphibious warships. Uh, The effect on that is, as you can see, the sand chart portion is the 2020 plan. The the green line above it is the FY19 plan. It actually has the effect of uh, reducing the overall amphibious force structure over the entirety of the 30-year shipbuilding plan uh, by about about two ships. The simple delays without any... uh, how should I say a uh, corresponding change in the life service of the existing amphibious ships that could extend the, they could extend the service life of existing existing amphibious ships if the Navy wants to to help fill those gaps but that 's not currently in the plan this is the resulting effect, effect on the force structure. Uh, Ron also mentioned that there was an additional sub, attack submarine put into the shipbuilding plan this year compared to prior years. Um, one of the other this and the, the sand color chart again shows the uh, 2020 plan. The, uh, the red line shows the Navy's proposal to refuel an additional five Los Angeles-class attack submarines, and those refuelings, which would extend the service lives of those ships about 10 years, are not currently reflected in the Navy shipbuilding plan because they don't put those into the plan until they're actually funded within within a fit-up. So the additional... Uh, attack submarines that would be in the force structure as a result of the fuelings as they get carried through, is shown in the red line. And then the black line is showing the uh, force structure compared to the uh, FY19 plan. Interestingly, and I don't quite understand why this is the case, uh, I don't fully understand the details, the additional attack submarine being purchased in uh, 2020 and it would execute as a 2023 ship, so that means it should be in the fleet by 2030, does not have any effect on the inventory between the two plans in 2035 and beyond. There's a couple reasons why that might be the case. It could be a mistake in the the Navy's graphic, uh, in Navy's numbers, or it could be that there's minor adjustments being made with retirements and um, uh, purchases of other ships, but I don't see evidence for that, so I'm not sure why we have no change in the inventory of the plant between the two plans, despite the additional tax summary and beyond 2035. So let me talk a little bit about now some of the more uh, detailed things that Ron was talking about. So the Navy has said that They're making all these changes, these cuts to the shipbuilding program in particular, because they want to redirect that money into other programs, uh, mainly the unmanned systems that Ron was referring to, uh, weapons as well as uh, the development of things like hypersonic and directed energy weapons. Mm. So I wanted to take a look at um, what do the numbers actually show? To me, that's the proof in the pudding. So what we see here, and I'm going to emphasize, I'm going to draw your attention mostly to the last column, which is the four years that that overlap the two plans, the FY19 plan and the 2020 plan. So the the sum total of the changes in shipbuilding, the Navy has reduced their, um, basically, in effect, their request for funds over that four-year period by uh, $3.5 billion. Uh, Likewise, they have reduced aircraft procurement over that same overlapping four-year period by $2.8 billion. So they're they're saving $6.3 billion between their two plans uh, under these major weapon system categories. So where did the money go? Well, some of the money went back into weapons, as the Navy said, 1.2 billion dollars reflecting additional weapons purchases. And then, referring to what Ron was talking about, um, 3.1 billion dollars went to the procurement of these unmanned systems, uh, particularly the large, uh, the extra large un- underwater unmanned system, the or- also called the ORCA, and as well as the large unmanned uh, surface vehicle. And that's particularly where most of the money is going. It's going in the procurement of those ten platforms. Um, over the next over the next five year period, so an additional 3.1 billion dollars was put into these unmanned systems compared to the FY19 plan. Now, I haven't gotten the time to sort of delve into sort of where the Navy has been investing in R and D in terms of those uh, hypersonics or directed energy weapons. So there may there may account for some of the additional uh, savings that, that is being spent there. But we can certainly see here that of that 6.3 billion, uh, you know, more than four billion is accounted for in these. Uh, in these additional investments in these other areas. So let me just talk briefly about a number of issues that, that these changes raise in the shipbuilding plan. Um, one, of this, one of the issues, and Ron has discussed it with using some of the Navy charts as well as some of the charts that I put out in prior years, is that that building this 355-ship Navy is going to take a sustained level of funding um, for a 30-year period. You know, 29 billion dollars, according to the CBO estimate, each and every year for 30 years. That represents the largest naval buildup we've seen. Um, certainly since the 1980s. And the 1980s period, and the next chart is going to show this, was actually a relatively short period of time compared to the 30-year period that we're going to need to, to maintain to uh, maintain the 355-ship fleet. Um, another issue that arises is that the, over the next five to six years, the Navy is going to introduce um, somewhere in the neighborhood of six new lead ships as part of the shipbuilding program. You have the Columbia-class submarine, the new frigate, the new large surface combatant, and these unmanned systems. Um, as a slide I will show from my backups, it shows us that lead ships are very difficult to do. The average historical cost growth on a lead ship program is 27%, and they can range anywhere from 10% up to um, staggeringly high numbers, depending on the success or failure of, the, of a particular program. Those kinds of potential historical cost growth, which I consider to be virtually inevitable in leadship programs, um, are not accounted for in the uh, funding estimates that the Navy puts out. They are accounted for, at least of the way I estimate them, in the CBO numbers. Turning to the industrial base a little bit. So by, the, by retiring the Truman, that's going to potentially have an effect on the, on the ability of Newport News Uh, to do further refuelings in the future. They're going to lose some learning. The Navy has stated in testimony and other forums that um, the workload is not going to change at Newport News because there's going to be other compensating work there. But nonetheless, as they have learned in the world of submarine construction and submarine maintenance, carrier maintenance and carrier construction are not quite the same thing. So they're going to lose some learning as a result when when it comes to refuel the next aircraft carrier after the Truman. Um submarine, is submarine construction, the industrial base there, is that going to be overextended with the, with the uh, uh, additional attack submarine that's been put in 2020, the VPM modules that are coming in on the Virginia-class attack submarines, and, of course, the Columbia-class? It's a huge ramp-up that we're doing in the submarine industrial, ba- industrial base. We've already seen some perturbations, some delays in Virginia-class uh, submarine uh, deliveries. It seems to me that the, while the Navy has testified recently that um, this could actually this additional submarine could actually smooth the workboat workload at electric boat i haven't seen that data myself i 'm a little curious to see what that looks like but even if I take them at their word, the supplier base is still going to have in my opinion difficulties and challenges in meeting this higher level of submarine construction and likewise uh, the amphibious ships are going to be a loss of learning there One of the things that has been in in the navy shipbuilding plans for some years now is that there is a seven year gap between the uh, last LHA uh, amphibious assault ship and the one that's being purchased in 2024, that seven-year gap is going to essentially cause an entire loss of learning for that program. So unless that program is speeded up or another ship is added, at, say, in 2021, there's definitely going to be a, have an effect on the, on the efficiency and the construction of those types of ships that's going to affect uh, the future ones that are purchased. So this is sort of my attempt to sort of look at sort of the demands that are going to shipbuilding is going to require in historical context. So if you look at the, hold on a second, let me put on my reading glasses here because even I can't see in the back back there. So if you look at periods of of what I would call uh, intense security competition historically, compared to what we're going to face in the future, if you believe we're now in an era of great power competition and that era is going to last for a very long time. You can see that what we spent on shipbuilding in the past in those periods of intense security competition is very comparable to what the CBO estimate is for the Navy shipbuilding plan for the next 30 years. And then, not surprisingly, in periods that I, what I designated, and we can debate whether these are these right years or not, but um, in periods of what I would call less intense security competition, even some of those periods during the Cold War or, and then post-Cold War era, average shipbuilding spending was uh, much, much lower. So the question becomes, for as a policy issue, and CBO doesn't take a position on this, but if you believe that we're in an era of great power competition, what is the right level of of naval ship construction? Historically, we we see some answers of what we've said in the past. That may be the answer we need to say in the future. Conversely, we may say, well, we haven't spent that much in the last thirty years on ship construction. So, looking for such a large increase. For the next thirty years, is, is it may be more than the, the nation can can afford. Again, CBO doesn't take a position in that debate, but that is kind of one of the fundamental debates about shipbuilding that we have going forward. Last two slides, I'm not going to briefly touch on this. Ron already presented this picture, so I'm not going to talk about it. The last column here is the administration's 2020 request, so you can see that they're trying to maintain at least what the Congress has appropriated over the last few years. And the last slide, I'll use one of my backups here. Going back to this issue of lead ship cost growth, this is what I was talking about. You, see, you can see a variety of lead ships that have, have have overrun in costs over the last 30 years. All of them except one has, has had substantial cost overruns. And the only one that didn't, the difference there is that the ESB, Congress chose to buy two ships that year rather than the administration request of, run, of one. So the reduction of 6% was not some particular great efficiency other than the spread of overhead costs between two ships rather than one. So those are my remarks. Thank you very much.
3: All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ron and Eric. Those are fantastic. And thank you, Tom, for inviting us uh, to this panel today. Where's Tom. Oh, there you are. Um, so I'm going to you know set back and maybe start thinking about a little a little bit about what the Navy is maybe trying to do or going to need to do going forward. Um, We've we kind of laid out some changes that are in the budget and the shipbuilding plan that the uh, PB20 represents. Uh, and I'm going to go over a couple of slides to kind of talk a little bit more thematically about, well, what are we seeing here? And what might be, be the, the future of the, the Navy's uh, budget and the shipbuilding plan? So this is the slide or the picture that the Navy uses to describe kind of the overall budget for PB20. Here's the big chunks of money that we're spending and where they're going. Um, so a couple of things jump out at this. Uh, of this, so one is uh, as uh, Eric and Ron had alluded to, procurement uh, actually goes down a little bit between the last budget and this budget, and depending on which slice you look at, it might go down pretty significantly. So less procurement overall in in the program in PB twenty. At the same time, you've got uh, both uh, manpower costs and operations and maintenance costs going up, you know, pretty significantly. So between five and ten percent for both of them. Uh, that that represents a, you know, a focus of the Navy on being a, making sure that ships are manned appropriately. We've had concerns about manning in, in surface fleet in particular, but in other parts of the fleet as well. There's concerns about readiness clearly within the surface fleet, but also in the submarine fleet, as we discussed. Uh, you know, There's ships that are stuck in, uh, in overhaul for years on, uh, on end. So you've got some concerns with readiness and manpower in the Navy that are being addressed in part by throwing more money at the problem. Uh, but in addition, what we're seeing is the The discussion that the Navy has been having and all the services have had for a while about the fact that manpower and sustainment costs are growing faster than inflation, growing faster than the size of the force. So as the Navy looks forward to trying to reach a 355-ship Navy uh, with the appropriate number of sailors to go with that, they're going to have an increasing cost for the manpower and sustainment that's going up even faster than the size of the fleet probably about by 5 to 10%. So you're going to have a 15% increase in the size of the fleet with potentially a 20% increase in the size of the cost to man it and maintain it. Uh, But those are sort of, this this is the incipient part of that trend uh, that we're seeing right here. Significantly, though, um, the Navy increased funding for R&D by quite a bit. You know, it's it's almost, it's about a 10% increase in the amount of funding for R&D uh, in, their, in their budget would represent something they strategically talked about. They talked about we're taking money out of some of these legacy programs and we're putting it towards investment in the next generation of naval capabilities. Um, that might seem like bumper sticker kind of talk, but in reality, there's a, there is a strategic shift underway in sort of how the Navy is wrestling with these challenges. Um, And it kind of comes down to the fact that if the fleet is going to become more expensive to maintain and man going forward, simply growing our way out of uh, our current situation to get to the great power competition Navy that we need isn't going to work. We need maybe a different strategic approach than simply being the primacist, uh, biggest kid on the block, able to kick the butt of every other military. We might have to put some thought into it and come up with a better way to win than simply having more firepower than the other side. Um, So you're seeing some of those changes start right now. Uh, If you look at the fleet composition that's in the shipbuilding plan, um, I would argue that this shipbuilding plan is more or less a placeholder that the Navy put out to describe how you would get to 355 ships if you thought that this was the objective that you were intending to reach. You would extend the lives of destroyers. You would continue to build out your other classes of ships, and you'd create a fleet that eventually reaches 355 ships. And so I've, you know, categorized them there according to their various classes and types. The um, the challenge with this fleet is it's going to cost way too much to sustain and to man, compared to what the Navy is likely to have available in funding. So this is, you know, probably not achievable, and maybe not even desirable. The Navy is maybe making the starting to make the argument for we can't reach this fleet. We have to come up with a new approach to naval uh, operations, naval warfare that is going to win despite the fact that we're not going to be able to build a a fleet that's able to defeat in a traditional way. So going from a war of attrition approach to maybe something different. Um, Notably in here, uh, as uh, Ron and Eric were talking about, the balance between small and large surface combatants in the surface fleet Seems, uh, you seems know, like it's a very expensive way of, of having a surface fleet. You've got uh, about two-thirds of the fleet being large surface combatants. About one-third is small surface combatants. That means you've got a lot of manpower, a lot of sophisticated warships that cost a lot of money to maintain. But that That's a, a recipe for a very expensive fleet in the out years, especially when you extend the lives of those large surface combatants out to 45 years. Well beyond what we anticipate them going to, so that's going to be expensive to maintain those ships and to man them with you know the kinds of crews that a large surface combatant has. Uh, the the so the thought process is well, the Navy is looking to you know shift some of this investment towards unmanned systems. Um, you're looking to maybe have unmanned systems take the place of manned platforms in some situations. I think one way we would want to think about that is the idea of essentially decomposing the capabilities that are resident in a large, monolithic, uh, multi-mission platform. So a destroyer, a carrier, uh, even a submarine that's designed to do many missions at once, defend itself from a variety of threats, uh, and do it all in a self-contained kill chain that exists within that hull, Uh, that approach has been what has stood the test of time in naval warfare, but it may not be the approach that we need to take going forward. So what the Navy is sort of alluding to is, are we going to start decomposing and taking our capabilities maybe and having instead of one uh, destroyer being what the unit of issue is, it's a frigate and two unmanned surface vessels or an even smaller surface combatant and a number of the unmanned surface vessels. That fleet might be... uh, offer the opportunity to maybe break this linkage between number of ships, number of people, and certain sustainment costs, because those unmanned vehicles will take less people, not no people. They may be less sophisticated, so less expensive to maintain. And then your cost curve starts to change. And so as we grow the fleet, it's not growing linearly in terms of sustainment and manpower costs. It's maybe growing something less than linearly. But that, that's one of the things that jumps out as we look at this and think about the the cost to sustain that fleet. So, as, as uh, Eric noted um, and Ron noted, this is the you know the cost that the Navy says to buy the fleet. This is affordable within what the Navy's been receiving for uh, shipbuilding funds. Um, you know, five years ago we were we would have said this is never going to happen, or ten years ago we would have said this is unlikely to happen. But um, it looks like the Navy has been able to sustain this more approximate level of shipbuilding funding and is likely to get it continued going forward. The problem is maintaining that fleet is going to become too expensive. And the Navy's is lay- starting to lay that argument out right now. And I think what the Navy's likely to do in your next budget is look at ways to start reducing the size of the fleet as measured in traditional ways, like numbers of manned hulls, and look at new ways to evaluate naval capability, like capability delivered by a combination of manned and unmanned platforms as they seek to decompose this manned fleet into smaller units of issue that might be uh, less manpower intensive and less expensive to maintain individually. Um, so that might break this curve that would otherwise take you inexorably towards a fleet that's un- unaffordable. Uh, the, um, so, so I think you know, as we think about going towards the future uh, in the shipbuilding plan, is you know, we need to step back and say that the track we're on is probably not the track that's going to be uh, affordable. And we need to think about what's an alternative track that's going to be able to sustain the ability to uh, deliver naval capability in the places that it needs to be delivered at the times it needs to be delivered. And what's the underlying approach? And I'd argue that um, the Navy is starting to make the case for moving away from the idea of a war of attrition type approach to naval warfare, where I'm just going to out-missile the other guy, to a a decision, uh, a focus, uh, a, a approach focused more on decision superiority. How can I make the other guy Think twice about initiating hostilities today. How can I create uncertainty for the other side? How can I create complexity for the other side? So the idea of moving away from monolithic, multi-mission platforms that cost a fortune to man and sustain towards a mixture of manned and unmanned platforms that are more of a decomposed, uh, composable force, more of a mosaic of capabilities, that approach might offer the ability to create complexity for an adversary and at least forestall conflict and maybe win conflict if it does come to that. But I think that we need to start thinking about alternative approaches to deliver naval capability because these curves are all showing us a direction that's going to be unsustainable. So thank you.
4: Thank you. Mosaic. I'm going to be using that one in the future. Um, So... uh, Always difficult to follow uh, three individuals such as what we just had because they've already made most of the arguments uh, that are out there, so I'm just going to lightly move over a number of themes here with the idea of of trying to get to the Q&A session as well as uh, give sufficient time to my distinguished colleague to my left. So uh, at the macro level, looks good. Overall budget is up year over year. O&M is up. R&D appears to be up, and readiness appears to be returning to the force. Uh, And there is a plan to get to 355 by 2434. However, there's a number of negative indicators. First of all, the overall budget seems to be up, but the base budget versus OCL funding seems to be an extension of the gimmick. And I think it's going to catch us in the shorts here pretty quick. SCN spending actually uh, declined slightly. Um, 355-ship plan rides uh, on the back of uh, Slepping, the Flight 1 Berks. Um, Engineering history suggests that this is not a wise decision. Uh, we have actually uh, very limited engineering data about uh, crudez des units above 30 years of use, and what data we have isn't promising. So we have uh, some of the original nuke um, uh, surface ships, the Long Beach, the Bainbridge, that we took the 32, 34 years, and we have some of the Ticonderogas right now, which have exceeded 30 years, and the, the amount of cost it takes to maintain those uh, after that time, uh, it does increase dramatically. I know the Navy has said that if they brought these ships in, they've looked at them, uh, meaning the, the Burks during their overhauls, and that the, the, the numbers look good. But I suspect uh, that, in fact, this slepping the Flight 1s in order to get us to 355 in 2034 is a short-term gimmick that will likely go away at the end of this administration and the stated goal of 355 ships. Uh, overall, aviation buy is smaller than previous budget submission as uh, F-35 Charlie and F-18 EF buys were decreased across this uh, fit-up. Again, uh, we know where that money has gone. We've already had uh, the other gentleman talk about uh, movement to unmanned. Um, and I agree that the surface force seems inordinately top-heavy with too much emphasis on cruisers and destroyers uh, across the 30-year plan. Uh, Carrier air wing is not evolving fast enough. There is unmanned uh, MQ-25 buy, and there's four and four in the last two years of the fit-up. But both that choice of platform um, in that uh, uh, an organic tanker uh, doesn't bring enough additional capabilities to the air wing in order to stretch out the strike range of the air wing, and also the buy is small. So you have eight aircraft essentially at the end of the fit-up uh, properly positioned, quite frankly, to have resources there. The Navy aviation uh, community, uh, specifically the carrier aviation community, still seems to be rather focused on the next-generation uh, air dominance or the next-generation fighter that will be in the air wing. I'm trying to preserve their options for that. Uh, that's at least my read on it. Weapons procurement seems to be focused on JDAM and Larasm, uh, and again, that's sea control and sea denial-type weapons not power projection weapons, um, although we, there is some interesting investment in the R&D lines that I'll highlight. There are some promising trends. Frigate program uh, is commencing on its own in this fit-up. The Navy is increasing the buy, uh, again pulling forward, going to two ships a year in the second year, but it's two, two, two after that. The Perrys, when we bought them, were actually built in three yards and at a production rate of six per year. Um, and I would hope that the Navy would look at a lead-follow type of relationship with frigates because I agree that we need a better balance with high-low between crew des units and frigates going forward. Um, the large unmanned surface vessel uh, at a two-a-year buy rate uh, is carry either sensors or missiles or perhaps both. Um, ought to count in the ship count, and I've actually written about this, that we ought to be looking at those certainly against historical standards where we've done waves and generations of experimentation in the past. We have counted those ships within the battle force. Uh, I actually raised in my article recently that we actually uh, used the Helium uh, rigid air dirigibles and counted them in the battle force during the 20s and 30s. And I think as we move forward with experimentation, specifically with these large surface combatants, are large unmanned surface vessels that we ought to perhaps uh, include those. Refueling the five Los Angeles-class improved SSNs uh, is good for the force. Uh, Clearly, I think these will be used differently, but they also have uh, Tomahawk capability and power projection capability that we should retain. Specifically, as we are looking at the idea of the Ohio's, not necessarily in this fit-up, but just beyond the fit-up as we lose those four SSGNs, At 155 VLS tubes apiece, uh, we will be hard-pressed to make up that VLS tube inventory in the force. And, again, uh, increased R&D investment, future Navy capabilities, uh, directed energy and electric weapons got a a significant plus-up in the R&D section. Precision strike weapons is a massive uh, increase in the R&D section of the budget. And then increased uh, investments in advanced tactical unmanned aircraft system. That wasn't a significant increase. It was it was an increase. I, I like the fact that there's a, a trend analysis, but I hope that there inside that is um, is a real viable tac unmanned tactical aircraft that can be launched and recovered on the aircraft carrier. Bottom line is this budget represents a hedge for change. Uh, but I believe the OPNAV staff and the Navy staff is looking for a clear direction to make major changes in fleet architecture going forward. And with that, that that's the mosaic that I, I <laughs> presented. Very
5: nicely done.
4: Um,
5: <clears throat> thank you to everyone who's here today and for those who are watching uh, on the internet for taking time out of your busy mornings of Game of Thrones recapping. Uh, it's good to be back among this Murderer's Row of Naval Thinkers here at Heritage. As Tom indicated, I've spent the last week in a narcotic-like haze celebrating my team's victory in the NCAA championship. So if I start talking about how the um, pack line defense would be a perfect metaphor for how to do uh, ISR&T in the South China Sea or uh, block remover offense, it would be a good ASW. uh,
4: Or shooting from three-point range.
5: (laughs) Or block remover, good a good way to, to do uh, Russian AS, uh, ASW against the Russians. Just let me go for a second. I'll come back. Okay. Um, I want to make sure that everybody understands that everything I say here today is either my opinion or a fact. <laughs> <laughs> there are nobody else's opinions, just mine. Okay. Um, I m- my job here is I'm going to drill down in something that uh, isn't counted in the ship count uh, but has gotten a lot of discussion here today which is the unmanned surface vessels that's what i want to talk about with you today um it's clear that the the exciting thing to take away out of the surface forces budget is this is this emphasis on unmanned it's committing to a distributed netted force underpinned by optionally unmanned and unmanned surface vehicles when i think about some of the really great work done by both Jerry and Brian. Jerry and his Hilo mix and Ford and Ferrari stuff and Brian and the CSBA fleet architecture. This this uh, diminishing in the emphasis of large-surface combatants and the growth of small-surface combatants and unmanned, Th- these guys were all over this years ago, and I, and I uh, credit them for that. Uh, now, because resources are, as always, limited, when you spend something, more on something, you've got to give something else up. And uh, although um, Ron indicated that the large surface combatant was accelerated from fiscal year 30 to fiscal year 25, and that is a fact from the fiscal year 19 budget submission, the CNO put out in his design for maritime superiority that the large surface combatant would be acquired in fiscal year 23. Um, and that's where the uh, OpNav Enterprise was moving. Uh, they were they decided that they would slide that to the right two years, to fiscal year 25, which created some room and space for these uh, uh, unmanned systems. Um, the big news in the fiscal year 20 budget submission is in the large unmanned surface vessel, LUSV. It includes $447 million to buy two USVs, R&D money, by the way, and this is a significant change in what the fiscal year 19 budget had for LUSV, which was about uh, $45 million, um, which included no actual vehicles. So we went from just sort of study money and systems money to let's go buy some vehicles. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, by way of kickstarting this process, the PEO Unmanned and Small Combatants Unmanned Systems, otherwise known as PMS-406, issued a request for information, an RFI, right about the same time the budget came out, that speaks to these uh, uh, large unmanned surface vessels and how to achieve a low-cost LUSV with an integrated vertical launch system. That's pretty much what we're talking about with the LUSV, an unmanned, two to three hundred foot long, roughly two thousand ton mm-hmm. adjunct magazine to carry missiles that can be vertically launched. The Navy seems primarily interested in affordability, with a focus on solutions that, res- that reduce design costs and construction or conversion costs. Commonality and modularity are important, as is, as always, margin in size, weight, and power for future capability upgrades. The Navy is stressing existing manned or unmanned surface ship designs, primarily commercial or almost exclusively commercial, that can be redesigned or modified, um, although a a clean sheet design would be acceptable if it could meet the cost and schedule constraints. I think the Navy believes that's Probably unlikely, but they haven't restricted it. By low cost, the Navy does not provide an actual figure in the RFI, but it does state that the cost should be significantly less expensive than a small surface combatant, which is roughly $500 million for an LCS or $850 to $950 million for, uh, the new frigate. Given that there's $440 million in the fiscal year 20 budget for two ships, you can do the math and figure out uh, what they expect to pay for these. The plan is to build 10 uh, to a year through fiscal year 24. The Directorate of Surface Warfare, otherwise known as UPNAV N96, has produced a set of top-level requirements that will guide the acquisition of both the LUSV and the somewhat farther along medium USV. In fact, the Navy expects in the very near future, and I think believe that's within the next 60 days, to, do, to issue an actual request for proposals on the medium USV, which is expected to come in somewhere between 11 and 50 meters in length. On this timeline, an acquisition decision is likely this year, whereas the LUSV would acquire next year. So it appears that we've got serious resourced momentum moving towards uh, moving forward to field unmanned capability and capacity within the surface force. But the question remains, and I'm sure you ed- educated people here are asking yourselves, what are they going to do with them, right? Um, well, the answer with respect to the LUSV is pretty easy. Um, the Navy expects this vessel to be available to sub- supplement the weapons inventories of manned vessels. To this end, the Navy has specified that, it'll, that the LUSV will be equipped with 32 VLS cells, uh, a C4I system, and a combat management system, each of which will be provided to the shipbuilder as government-furnished equipment. In other words, we ought to consider these platforms as extensions of the integrated combat systems environment that the Navy has been talking about for the last two or three years. And whereas VLS launchers on a manned ship are hardwired into the combat system, this uh, modality is going to require that a combat management system communicate with that launcher over the air. Uh, And that's a technical challenge that the Navy is very interested in seeing how industry plans to solve. Um, If you think about a true integrated combat system, that's going to have to get solved anyway. So um, in order to be able to shoot missiles from an adjunct magazine, you either have a very long umbilical cord, or you have to do it over the air. to the extent that there will be autonomy in this, these vessels, it appears that it's going to be in the navigation and the and the propulsion of these ships, not in the uh, weapons and sensors. Bottom line is that the Navy wants to get these built and out and about for testing, both technical validation and CONOPS development. For example, and this is in the CONOPS world, will these vessels routinely deploy with a strike group? Will they routinely... Uh, uh, and be employed with surface action groups or independent deployers? Will they main, mainly remain in port, getting only under underway only for major fleet exercises or tests? Will they deploy independently and join up with presence forces around the world? Or presence forces fall in on them to help provide protection for them? Um, <clears throat> and when they do deploy, or if they do deploy... What are the signals that will cause the Navy to wish to move them? When they have to move thousands of miles to be where they need to be, you can't be late to the game. So all of those things will roll into a CONOPS development for the LUSV. With respect to the medium USVs, the playing field is wide open, although current thinking is that these vessels will primarily serve as adjunct sensors rather than weapons platforms. What are we talking about? We're talking about persistent ASW, anti-submarine warfare, in areas of the world that mean something to us where it is very difficult to put manned ASW systems because of sea state, weather, those sorts of things. Um, uh, Also, uh, the the ability to do multi-static anti-submarine warfare where one platform provides an active signal and another platform Receives that signal. Obviously, there's timing and, and uh, geometry involved in that, but that's how you uh, that's how you do multistatic ASW, multi-static radar operations potentially, counter C4ISR, C4ISR. There's a whole bunch of things that the Navy is routinely um, uh, experimenting with in war games that we up here in the front table have. Um, collectively played a great deal of in the last couple of years. Um, The Navy seems to have a good idea what these ships are, what these vessels are, but less of a good idea and how they should be used, and that's where they are moving next. If you remember at Surface Navy Association in January, Vice Admiral Brown of the uh, Surface Force in San Diego talked about the stand-up of a Surface Warfare Development Squadron. I fully expect that the surface warfare development squadron is going to be ground zero for this CONOPS development of these uh, unmanned vessels, irrespective of the size. Um, I could do an hour more on what's happening underwater or in the sky in unmanned vessels, but we'll do those in other panels. Thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. Some uh, great uh, comments there, a variety of topics on there. uh, I guess I'll, since Brian was the last one to talk about the large unmanned surface vessel and this um, one, you know, um, developing the capabilities, the CONOPS, right, policies, all these, you know, integrated pieces. Um, I guess I would get, take some thoughts from the panelists on the Navy's decision to not just purchase the first two, the plan to be purchased in 20 are going to be the same design from a, uh, uh, a strategic capabilities office program that was... But then they want to move on very quickly in 21 to a new design based on this point uh, and and build those going forward. Um, So it it brings about a piece I see right. This there's a line between wanting to move faster uh, on and fielding a new technology, and also right if you go moving try to move too fast and and uh, you know purchase a design before it's fully formed. Right as we normally see right, you get a lot of uh, increased costs and delays in that program. So, um, I would take some, you know, thoughts you have on, you know, is it wiser to buy the initial four, do some more testing, concepts development, and even if you waited a year or two, or is it is the Navy right on track of hey, putting the ga- the pedal to the gas and, you know, in going forward at, at this aggressive rate. So, I, I take thoughts from uh, from anyone on the panel on this, Ron.
1: Uh- I'll start just to put this in context. The way that the Navy wants to get these unmanned platforms, um, uh, uh, the pace that they want to procure them at, even before the technologies have been fully developed and the CONOPs have been fully developed, is an expression uh, of the urgency, I think, that the Navy is attaching to this situation. And it is emblematic of where at least some acquisition may be headed in coming years, during the post-Cold War era where we had the luxury of overmatch and the luxury of time and we could afford to be very careful and time-consuming in procurement programs so as to prevent cost growth or schedule delays or testing problems, there is a feeling that in the new era of uh, renewed great power competition that Uh, you still want to try to do those things, but those aren't the only metrics for judging the success of an acquisition program, and we no longer have the luxury of time, so we have to move more quickly, and we have to, therefore, also be prepared for um, uh, making decisions in the absence of perfect or complete knowledge, and we also have to be prepared for uh, the risk of failure uh, in the development and acquisition of some of these. Tolerance for failure as opposed to uh, uh, exquisite or zero defect acquisition. So you can see the Navy's plan for these uh, LUSVs and these XLUVs as being one example or expression of where some acquisition may be headed in a context of great power competition.
2: Anyone else? Well, I was just going to make the same one of the same points that Ron made with that. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with, with with doing what the Navy wants to do, moving quickly, but they do need to socialize their various audiences inside the Navy, outside the Navy, on Capitol Hill. That we're going to have we're going to have failures. We're going to say, well, we experimented with that, spent a lot of money, didn't work, throw it away. We're going to try something different, but we learned a lot in the process. If they don't do that socialization as part of this acquisition process, it could it could end up looking. Um, uh, many people might draw the analogies to sort of how the LCS played out.
3: Oh, yeah. So I've got some thoughts on this. So so I think it's great that the Navy is uh, pursuing aggressively the fielding of uh, unmanned platforms uh, and it's something that in the fleet architecture study and elsewhere we've been arguing for a long time. I, I think if you look at the the cost or the potential risks of, of investing in an unmanned platform before you've really wrung out the requirements for it fully, they're a lot less. Because you think about building a multi-mission warship, you know, like a LPD-17 that we talk about being a Swiss army knife. Well, it really matters how you put a Swiss army knife together because all the parts are interrelated and they, they affect one another. So my con ops are super important for how I design that multi-mission platform for a single function unmanned system where it's going to you know be an unmanned surface vessel like here it has a VLS magazine and could have some sensors, but it may not you know we can we can decide that later it, the the risks of investing in that, building it, and then experimenting with how you would actually employ it are a lot less. You're much more likely to be able to find a way to use it than you would with a, a multi-mission platform, where if you start changing the con ops, it dramatically changes the underlying you know, design of the, of the platform. So I think it's more about a single function thing is easier to plug into a CONOP op than it is to you know, do that with a multi-mission platform. I think the other thing to think about is the Navy's plan for essentially starting with a loyal wingman kind of idea, where mm-hmm. your unmanned surface vessel is going to go and do something in conjunction with a manned platform. Is a sort of a crawl, walk, run way of employing them, and then eventually move to having a way of independently deploying them to do missions separate from or men- a manned vessels. Yeah, great point.
4: So the, the thing that strikes me again, I, I go to historical analogies a lot, is that we we really missed. Uh, the moment in during the what is now quickly becoming apparent is the, the inter-Cold War era uh, where we had this, this respite to really do experimentation. We sort of doubled down on on status quo, and we kind of built what we were building, and we just kept building those things. Um, and now we are doing in, in Cold War II, the dawning moments here of Cold War II, this great power competition, what we had done during the 1920s and 1930s, which is sort of rapid evolution, innovation, fleet experimentation, and we're, we're trying to get it going in a hurry. Uh, so all the conversations about how do we do work with Newport, where we go with war gaming, how are we going to do rapid uh, development of perhaps multiple prototypes of, of six different new uh, ships, you know, in a, in a single period of time, um, you know, that's very much, I mean, we, we built six different classes of destroyers during the 1920s and 1930s where we were just continuously learning figuring out what it was to be a transoceanic Navy, you know, that range mattered in ship design, sea keeping in sea states, you know, higher sea states, et cetera. And, and I think the Air Force went through something very similar where it did the, the Century Series, F-100 through about F-105, F-106 as well, during the late 1950s to the 1960s. We're facing that right now as we try to rapidly integrate unmanned platforms in along with manned platforms and come up with new concepts of operations to bring them in. And so I was really glad, actually, Vice Admiral Brown's statement about these, these, uh, these uh, squadrons to do test and development uh, because that's where we need to get back into is sort of the fleet exercise mentality of trying to figure out how to get all these components to work together.
5: Yeah, winter is coming. And uh, <laughs> it's, it really is time to, um, to work hard on hard things and occasionally fail. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm a history major, so I don't understand technology like I probably should, but it doesn't strike me as worth thinking about impossible things and being able to talk across the air from one ship to another and launch missiles when you wish to do so. Uh, the ability for that ship to move independently on its own, uh, with those, those algorithms are years old now. They've been tested and demonstrated. I I think we're getting there. Uh, What I don't believe is happening is that there is a sufficient corporate approach from the Navy to support uh, the money that is going to be necessary to do these hard things and fail and be able to succeed and fail and succeed and fail. They're not making the case. They're not making the case effectively. They are not out there... um, uh, advocating for sea power and that's the way that we're going to get it. We have, we've done well, right? We, we've showed the, you all showed us the budget, the air force and the army and everybody did well. It's just, it's a, the, the, every pig is in a full trough right now. Uh, they need to start to begin to, to make the case that sea power is different and that uh, additional uh, money should be applied to this endeavor.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. Um, one point I want to bring as I was looking through uh, over this issues and this new uh, new shipbuilding plan coming out. This this is actually kind of the the fourth course correction in uh, in the near term shipbuilding plan we've had in the last three years, right? 2017 there was the accelerated fleet plan that came out uh, last spring. There was the you know 2019 30 year shipbuilding plan. Um, late last year is. is as Brian McGrath mentioned, right, CNO's Design 2.0 also had some some goals of some shipbuilding programs and unmanned systems in there, and now we have the Twenty Twenty Shipbuilding Plan. So the and most of these these rudder steers have been in in the near term years. Um, so obviously, there's reasons behind this, the new strategy and threats developing, and tr- Navy trying to figure out where it's going, but. Uh, I, I welcome your, the panelist's thoughts on the impact this then has on the shipbuilding industry, and the supplier base, and the confidence in the Navy's plan from one year to the next of you know this constant churn of what they're uh, you know how they feel about what the plan is going to be and their ability to you know invest in their own uh, infrastructure going forward.
1: Well, again, I'll, I'll start just with a general comment that. Navy officials and industry officials state repeatedly that uh, stability and predictability is beneficial for industry where you can have it, and clearly the kind of developments we've been talking about on the panel today uh, are going to uh, create a complicated situation where uh, industry uh, is going to have to address a situation of uh, evolution in requirements evolution in technology and, and program plans and they will have to adjust to that inside of that situation of evolution. the Navy will have to look for pockets or opportunities of stability and uh, uh, and uh, you know repetition uh, at a steady drum beat and uh, both of those things will continue to go on as we move into this new period where we will have to be apparently making changes for, in programs due to changing threat and uh, emerging technological opportunity.
2: I don't have a whole lot to add compared to what I had said in my main remarks there. I guess I would want to just use this quick moment to sort of um, think about something the Navy has been saying in its relationship with industry on the frigate program. The Navy has been very much in, in front saying that this is what they think the, the frigate's going to cost $800 million on a recurring uh, follow-on basis. And my, my argument there is that if that's true, then they have prejudged the program because they can't possibly know that. They have designs in this competition that range from 3,000 tons to 6,500 tons. All those different designs cannot come in at the same price. So unless they prejudge the competition, which they said they have not, very emphatically they say have not, we don't know what the cost of that's going to be. So the effect on the shipbuilding industrial base for that program alone is is very much open the air and subject to a lot of change and variation.
3: I would say the, the biggest challenge is going to be for the shipbuilding supplier base, uh, because if you're... The the budget, as you noted, the shipbuilding plan has been jacked around a little bit over the last several years. Um, And it's usually, but it's, you know, the same basic platforms are being purchased. It's just the timing of them is changing. So if you're the prime shipbuilder, you can manage that by moving people between programs or, or by, you know, dealing with it through internally. I think the bigger challenge though is when this in the supplier base, because there are parts and and equipment and materials that are unique to a particular ship, and when that ship is delayed a couple of years, or when that ship is truncated, then that material is no longer needed or it's needed at a different time. And you're generally not big enough to be able to just, you know, where 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 I guess have the wherewithal to go through that. And you're looking instead for, you know, how do I get out of this business into something that's maybe more predictable? Um, it leads to uh, maybe a demand for the Navy and the primes. I know this is something that's already happening, is to seek greater commonality between ship classes so that if all the air conditioning plants are you know being you know b- bought from a common supplier then if you change the shipbuilding plan a little bit for the supplier of, of air conditioning plants that's less of an issue because they're still supplying air conditioning plants to a variety of programs that of course has the unintended consequence then of making it so that you're dependent upon a small number of suppliers for a large number of ship classes for a common component so there's trade offs there but that's that's the consideration we have to make if we're going to have these continued churn in the shipbuilding plan because the supplier base is really where it's going to affect the most.
4: So the, uh, the, what strikes me about this, and, and again, I think this is a, a, a big turnover point um, in in the way that the shipbuilding will go forward, uh, because up until now, because of the, the constrictions that went on in the, the inner Cold War period, that there wasn't a lot of uh, incentive to take on risk and make major changes. And in fact, we went through the era of consolidation and shipbuilding and shutting down of some yards and so on. Um, And so now, you know, the idea originally for these first two budgets, I think was how do I build more ships within the existing uh, structure that we have, but with the inclusion of these uh, large and medium unmanned surface vessels, and even some of the unmanned underwater vehicles, you actually have the ability to expand your defense industrial base. So two to 300 feet, 2000 tons Yeah, you can build that at the existing defense shipbuilding yards. Uh, But there's also yards, uh, other yards on the Gulf Coast. There's also yards on the Mississippi and even up into the Ohio that have the capability of doing that. Now, are they certified for building defense now? No, they're not. But is it a a means of expanding that base? Is that something that, you know, those who have taken a close look at the defense industrial base uh, inside the administration would be interested in? Yeah, it probably is. So the downstream, you have the, actually the ability as we get into unmanned to actually expand the, um, the shipbuilding base, uh, uh, largely because these platforms have different configurations and don't require as big a graving docks or construction facilities.
5: So it looks like the Navy is going to get bigger. It may not get bigger as fast as I wish it would, but it, it does appear that it will get bigger. Um, so you'll have construction of ships. A larger Navy will have a larger number of maintenance and modernization requirements. Um, this puts a, a stress on the workforce, and this is some research that I'm doing with Brian these days, looking at the, uh, and the, the skilled labor workforce. So we've got this increased demand for skilled labor, a workforce that is increasingly aging out, and a society and culture that does not value or does not seem to value um, paths that do not go through a four-year university as much as they might. I'm sure if I uh, did some research through Heritage's research in the past, you've spoken on this. But this is, I think, a real area for – a ripe area for research at the think tank level. How do we as a country meet what is not a declining – it is an increasing manufacturing job base – when people are choosing not to pursue the skills that will support that.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. Um, one thing that was pointed out, I guess, by several people, right, is and it's you know, I think been overlooked a lot in in the talk about the new shipbuilding programs and decommissioning, but that rapidly increasing sustainment cost of, of the fleet as it grows and especially with the uh, service life extensions of those of those ships. Um, do you I guess your thoughts on do you think are there ways that the Navy can actually counter this with uh, increasing production of more smaller surface combatants some of these unmanned platforms or is this going to be kind of be you know kind of the the crippling point that really you know limits the size of the Navy or is this something that we can the Navy can overcome in the coming years
1: uh, I'll start on that uh, I think Brian did a very good job of uh, Brian Clark of making it clear that. Uh, One of the major reasons for thinking about moving toward these unmanned or optionally manned platforms is precisely to help um, bring the Navy's uh, ONS costs uh, more under control in coming years. But a lot of the Navy that we will have in the future already exists and will continue to exist. And so we need to look at uh, perhaps... What you can do to reduce uh, the annual ONS costs of uh, the ships that are already built and will continue to be in the fleet. And the one that looms large uh, in the force structure in that regard is the DDG-51 class. The current plans call for building more than 90 of these ships. So there will be a very large number of DDG-51s in the fleet for many years to come, uh, even if we don't wind up extending their service lives to 40 five years. Um, those ships are um, uh, multi-mission ships. They can do a lot for the Navy, but the Navy has not really announced any major initiative to try and reduce their annual ONS costs through the application of new technologies, whether that would be hybrid drive to bring down their fuel costs or uh, other modifications you might make to help bring down their crew size. But um, I think it's important when we talk about uh, the future sustainment costs of the fleet. That we recognize that a lot of that is baked in right now. And if you don't even attempt to try and reduce the portion of those future ONS costs that are accounted for by ships that already exist, you're going to be overlooking a very large opportunity that you may have
2: uh, to address that situation. Um, truthfully, Tom, I, I don't think we know that yet, and I don't think we're going to know that for a long time to come, until we have figured out exactly what we are trading between if we're giving up a DDG and we're buying, what, a frigate, how many of the large USVs or small USVs to go with it, and what are the supporting infrastructure that's required for those systems? We don't know this. If we look at this as a comparison by unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned out there does not mean unmanned, yeah. because there's a lot of people on shore who are going to be there supporting those systems and the maintenance requirements for them, what standards of construction are they built at. There's a lot of things we don't know yet until we know what kind of a trade-off that's going to be. LCS was also kind of advertised in some ways as sort of being maybe to be a little bit more efficient, but we're not seeing any of the efficiencies in, in the operations and support costs of that platform yet either.
3: Uh, yes, yeah, so I think, uh, and you know, uh, Eric and, and uh, Rob, Ron bring up great great points on unmanned. I'd, I'd say one thing that the, you will need to think about is that the costs for manpower and sustainment of unmanned vessels are, are not going to scale in the same way that they do for manned. I mean, so it's if you have a small number of unmanned platforms uh, you still have to have a number of people to maintain them. You got to have people to control them and operate them, uh, and so you don't really see a lot of the savings if you have small I- units of issue, or in the Air Force's case, if you in- you know continue to use a single or multiple operators for every unmanned uh, vehicle. But the Navy's got several examples of where uh, you can scale that up and have a single operator manage several unmanned vehicles. Nav Oceano manages lots of glider UUVs out there simultaneously with a single or a couple of operators. The same with the UUV run-up in Keyport. Um, and you can see a similar thing happening with the MQ-4 as it gets deployed. So I think the Navy, to really generate the savings and break this cost curve with manpower and sustainment costs for the fleet, is going to have to buy unmanned vehicles in sufficient numbers that you can start benefiting from that scalability that they have relative to manned platforms. Thank
4: you. So I'll just use an example here because there's a couple of interesting concepts I think we need to get our mind around, which is that, You know, unmanned platforms don't necessarily have to deploy with manned platforms in order to maintain their training and qualifications and and so on. Uh, And I use the example here of when we were doing the prototype testing with the X-47Bs on the aircraft carrier for carrier landings and carrier takeoffs. So there's two prototypes built. Uh, they took them out there, they they landed the one, and they, they found that the the prototype was so accurate in its landing that it was beginning to dig a divot into the flight deck because it was hitting the exact same spot time and time again. So they did a software modification to begin varying the landing spot so that it was widening out the divot, not doing as much damage to the steel plate back there. And, and so once they did that software modification, they didn't have to go out and experiment with the second one. They downloaded the software modification into Prototype 2, and Prototype 2 was instantly qualified and certified to have the variable landing thing. So as you start looking at unmanned, the idea of doing experimentation and fleet exercises in and around the United States, perhaps in the Gulf of Mexico or off the coast, and starting to figure out how they're going to interact, you don't need to deploy that forward and practice with the fleet essentially you you get the software you you repeat it and and every ship within that class has that certification then and it will retain that certification certification It's the crew ships that have to get used to going out and having some exercise where it gets it sort of recertified working with the unmanned platform that's next to me. But when you go forward deployment, not necessarily that that unmanned goes with you forward deployed. Maybe that's a wartime reserve capability that we're only going to roll out at that point in time. We don't need to show the hand around everyone else in the world, which is why I think the things like the frigate program are important, because that is my lower cost forward presence platform for the day-to-day peace preservation aspect of what the Navy is all about. And we do have to bend that cost. I can't keep sending uh, Arleigh Burke-class destroyers on FONOPs and then have them have collisions two days after that. We, we need to send something that's a you know, frigate more appropriate for that type of a low-end engagement. And I think that's why we got to get the frigates into the fleet and, and change that force structure mix quickly.
0: I have nothing to add, Tom. So I'd like to open up some questions from the audience. So gentlemen, right there. Can you state your name, where you're from, and question?
2: Sure. Hi. My name is Sam
5: Perez. I'm from Rolls-Royce. Have you guys had uh, indication of whether or not the Navy's done a good enough job of looking at how the Chinese would respond or how the Chinese would fight, or the Russians for that matter, uh, if we were to deploy? In other words, have we red-teamed that to a sufficient degree that, you know, if we did deploy it in accordance with the CONOPS that you all
1: are are presenting – Uh, would we win? I think there's an implication that the Navy is proposing this because they have investigated questions like that. Now, exactly what those analyses look like and what their conclusions are in detail, the Navy is withholding that. But I don't think the Navy would be moving forward on this basis unless they had confidence that this represented the best path that the Navy feels they have identified for addressing the Chinese situation, because the Navy, like DOD in general, has made it quite clear that China uh, is the number one planning concern for thinking about future capabilities. So, no, they haven't released anything along those lines, but there's an implication that they have studied this issue. Thank you. I'm confident they are thinking deeply about these things.
0: Uh, there in the back, gentlemen.
1: Hi. Patrick Terrell, the Heritage Foundation. How much does um, Google and other companies in Silicon Valley's refusal to work with the U.S. military, how much will that affect sea power readiness?
4: I I think that everyone would be advantaged if we were able to fully leverage all aspects of our economy, you know, for national defense. And, you know, I'm continuously dismayed uh, when I see aspects of the economy that that uh you know feel that they're perhaps more part of international citizens as opposed to national citizens. That being said, uh DOD uh greenbacks spend the same way as everybody else's, and if you build, you know, if if you build it, they will come. And I think that we're starting to see other aspects of the economy that are are beating a path that want to lend support. I, I do wish that we were able to fully leverage the intellect that exists in places like Google. Uh, but the fact is, is if, if if they're not there, then, you know, there will be somebody else.
3: Yeah, and, and thinking about, you know, like artificial intelligence and using it, and specifically for readiness, when so you think about, you know, how do I improve my logistics train and how do I do predictive maintenance and things like that? There's companies that do that already that are working with the military, like Boeing does that, and they're already providing that that insight, you know, to the military and being paid to do it. So I I don't know that Google and and, you know, some of the commercial non- you know, military platform companies being involved is really going to be a big impact on their ability to use AI for improvement of readiness. To build on uh, Brian's
1: comments just now, we tend to think about AI in connection with autonomous operations of combat-capable unmanned vehicles, and that definitely is part of it. But Brian, I think, has made a point that's quite well taken that a lot of the application of AI will be in... um, uh, Uh, readiness, and non-combat applications within the Department of the Navy. Uh, But to get to your question, it then becomes a a matter of uh, how important an individual company's talent in AI uh, uh, looms as a part of the ecosystem for developing AI technology generally in this country. I don't have a good read on exactly how big of a player Uh, Google is in that regard. But that's what you would want to measure, and you you would want to measure it not only against the potential uses of AI in combat platforms, but uh, uh, in administrative functions uh, throughout the rest of the Navy, where, in fact, they could have tremendous uh, importance that's not always uh, discussed in in, um, um, situations like this.
0: Gentleman, right here in the back. Otto Kreischer with Sea Power Magazine.
2: A question to the, for the panel: How successful do you think the Navy's uh, plan on the frigate has been from the start? We're going to buy pre, you know, something
0: that's pre-existing, pre, something that's in service. Will that really work out to get you something faster and cheaper than you know, during the, uh, the standard uh, development process? Because every time we buy something that's you know, that's already in service somewhere else, we want to modify it. So how, how much do we really gain by doing the, uh, the pre-existing uh, design?
2: Well, I think there's, a, as I indicated earlier, I think there's a lot of things we don't know about that yet. We have to see, we haven't sort of seen what the final design is going to look like and what, uh, what specific changes they want to make. But if you certainly compare it to the history of other shipbuilding programs, new lead ship programs... Um, when you in, invest in a lot of new technology development in your lead ship, you have, um, serious major cost overruns and development delays. So I'm encouraged by the idea that a frigate that is going to use, uh, you know, existing technology, uh, in terms of the combat systems, in terms of the weapon systems and so on, and basically you're just going to be, des- when I can tell the major difference would be they're going to be designing a hull, um, that should in, in theory, based on, Historical comparison get you something a little quicker, a little less expensive than it would otherwise be if you put a lot of uh, new technology that you're trying to develop into that. Now, if you get a year or two into the program and somebody starts coming up with a whole long list of change orders and want to change things, oh, wouldn't this be a great idea? They try to gold plate it or hang other ornaments on this tree. Then you fall. Then you're going to follow down that path that, that led to things like, um, you know, the, the 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 Ford class carrier, the Zumwalt, and and so on. So. It's just a question. If you look at that chart that I put up there, the this most steepest cost overruns have been the ones that have been most heavily invested in the newer technologies.
1: And there are examples of where this approach, which is sometimes referred to as the parent design approach, the Coast Guard, for example, uses that term quite a lot, um, has been pursued successfully and inside the Navy. Um, for example, the Spruance-class hull itself became the, what, Eventually, the kid-class hull, when we bought it back from Iran, it became the basis for the Aegis cruiser. Uh, We took an existing design for an oil tanker and turned it into what was then called the mobile landing platform ship. And then we derived yet another design, the float forward staging base, what we call the ESB And in the Coast Guard, they have used the parent design approach for the fast response cutter, which is based on a Dutch uh, patrol boat. So there are examples, both in the Navy and in the Coast Guard, of where this has been done in the past. And it has uh, achieved uh, the goal of getting you into procurement soon with a design that turned out uh,
4: to be generally regarded as satisfactory. So I'm I'm a little concerned because the the – some of the best examples actually coming out of the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard doesn't have as many of the NAVC requirements on, um, as, as what the Coast Guard does. The Co- Coast Guard's more open to commercial uh, variants uh, than, than what the Navy has been. I, uh, also, the idea of the parent design from the Spruance to the kid to the Tyco, essentially that was an internal American design, and so you started with an American ship, you ended with an American ship. Whereas uh, in this competition right now, there are both American as well as foreign designs. And I'm afraid that we tend uh, to have uh, a bias to not designed here, are, are not designed spe- originally you know, to our specific original requirements. And I think that we have to be open to the fact, idea that there may be good ideas and innovations that come from overseas manufacturers who, quite frankly, are building a lot more ships than we are here in the United States as our uh, commercial side of shipbuilding has declined rapidly over over my lifetime. So uh, I hope that part of this frigate competition, we're actually open to the idea that perhaps there's ways of doing things that are better um, and that we allow those to come into the competition.
3: So I think we might even see in this frigate development um, more savings are going to result from the collaborative effort between the Navy and the shipbuilders to refine the requirements in concert with the design, which is happening right now through the design contracts that the Navy let, which which is sort of a new approach that they had started with the frigate to say we're going to give you money, shipbuilders, and we're going to work with you on refining your designs and looking at the cost and looking at the requirements for the ship because the requirements have not been fully Completed yet, either. So that that collaborative process is likely to help reduce the cost of the ship. You know, almost a design for affordability type approach taken at the very beginning, um, compared to just uh, taking the parent design and being able to incorporate it entirely into the new platform. So I think there's there's benefit there as well. But whatever
1: you think about the potential costs and benefits of this, uh, we are moving down a path where this is going to happen more often. The LPD seventeen Flight Two is based off the LPD. Uh, 17 design. Uh, We have a new oiler that draws upon the designs of previous uh, auxiliary type ships that were built by that shipyard. Uh, We are uh, in the icebreaker program uh, uh, looking at a parent design approach for that as well. So um, the more you go across all these shipbuilding programs, the more examples you will find in fact of where we are doing this, where we're either adopting or leveraging existing hull designs as the basis for whatever the program is moving forward.
5: Yeah, I think we got liquored up on transformation in uh, in the 2000 aughts. Uh, from the perspective of you can perturb a hull, you can perturb a combat system, you can perturb them both. Um, in the DDG one thousand, Clean sheet designs on both, and the LCS variants. Clean sheets designs on both, the FFGX program. We're, the Navy's given them the combat systems, not being perturbed. Proven designs, um, with the exception of the radar, which is a variant of the uh, of the SMs or the uh, the SpY six AMDR, which the Navy uh, is testing and is happy with the development of. Um, we have the, these examples of where we've done this before, right? The Tyco evolved from the Spruance. If you listen to the surface Navy talk about large surface combatant, their, their goal is to take the Flight 3 DDG combat system and drop it in a different hull. And then they will eventually, in that new hull, drop the new integrated combat system into it. So they're, what they're trying to do is learn the lessons of the early part of this century where they perturbed both hull and combat system at the same time and
0: paid for it. One last question. Um, right here in the front, Michael.
4: Mike Fabie from James. <laughs> I'm just curious of, of just how you think Congress is going to react or – to this whole idea of giving up its large surface ships. Um, in the past, it hasn't done too well in trying to get past the, on some of the Tyco, for example. And right now, there's a lot of signals um, coming out about we're not going to give up the Truman. So I'm just wondering, do you think it's time that Congress will give up those l- large ships, that, that attachment to it?
2: When you say give up, do you mean the retirement of the Truman? Do you mean the building fewer large surface combatants in the future?
4: Right now, the, the um, just all, it seems the whole idea of having the, the large ships that large ships at their control or at the country's control has been something they've been very attached to. They've been very loath to give up on, on um, getting rid of the, the uh, Tycos, for example, and
2: now the signals come out in the Truman are saying we're not ready to give that up either. I think you're going to see that pattern going forward still for at least a few more years. I think you will see Congress directing the Navy that they must refuel the – uh, the Truman aircraft carrier, I think you will see um, interest in, in perhaps trying to put an amphibious ship back into the budget or you know, move it, move it back to the left again. Um, likewise, in terms of the future surface combatants, they're going to be interested in continuing to build them. But at the same time, Ron and I have been attending a lot of hearings over the last few years. There's a lot of interest on a lot of members, certainly among the Armed Services Committee, in moving in this direction of these unmanned systems and incorporating them into the fleet. So I think there's a, a very much a receptive audience to bringing that in as part of the Navy's uh, combat fleet. At the same time, th- that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to let go of of, of the larger uh, surface ships, as, you, as you're referring to right away.
3: I think the Navy's going to have to do a better job of selling this idea that we just can't get there from here. You know that the amount of money required to sustain that larger fleet of larger vessels. It's just not going to be achievable in the out years. And so instead of whistling past the graveyard and continuing just to drive down there and say, well, we'll work it out when we get there, we've got to start thinking about how do we change that cost relationship between the size of the fleet and the cost to sustain it and man it. Um, and unmanned systems are a way to do that. But sort of incumbent in that also is a new way of thinking about how we fight the Navy, how, how the Navy fights. Uh, and making that explanation to Congress is going to be necessary as well, because the, the, the question will be, okay, great, we're going to get a bunch, bunch of unmanned vehicles. Can you win against China or Russia using those? And that's what the Navy is going to have to be able to convey.
4: So I I, I think there's been a rising um, a sense uh, or a, a gestalt uh, that's, that's coming along here with regard to the need for change. And so, you know, some of these articles that Brian wrote and I wrote and and some of the other people wrote almost 10 years ago uh, about the need for some significant changes in force structure, I think those have begun to take hold. And, you know, you could either say the argument is winning or fact is, is the facts on the ground are bringing the problem to to that argument. There's just no way uh, around it to either be competitive in the international order with the current existing force structure, uh, specifically with the threat that's coming. You have to make some significant changes. And so I think that you are seeing uh, a conversation that's occurring on Capitol Hill, and I've seen it in those hearings and the testimony as well. Uh, But I also think uh, that there's a a broader sense uh, on on the national scale. I think the Navy does have to do a better job of getting out and not hedging but actually committing to the changes um, and, and kind of really pushing the chips out onto the table. Um, but uh, for right now, I'm just glad that we've, we've, we have seem to be at the pivot point. We seem to be tipping towards an alternative for structure design.
5: No, no offense to um, the legislative branch of our great government, but there's like 60 people up there who really track this stuff closely. Mm-hmm. Um, we're spending – $10 billion a year more on building ships in real dollars than we were six years ago, maybe? I mean, that's a guess. Um, it's, you know, follow the money. The, the, it's the, it's, more halls are being built. Congress is happy. Um, there is a good argument for the kinds of architectural changes that Brian and Jerry have so eloquently argued for in the past. Um, they're making the argument to those 60 people, and I think they're turning. The bigger argument that Brian brings up, the sustaining the cost, um, we're going to have a hard time wringing ONS savings out of ships that are already out operating. The way to get ONS savings out of ships is to build it in. The way to build it in is to require it in. (laughs) And as long as you don't take life cycle costs into the original specification of a ship, you will repeat this this, uh, pathology over and over again. I hope we're learning.
0: Thank you all for coming today. I want to thank all my expert panelists for a great discussion today. Thank you very much.
2: Always, always a pleasure. One thing is off that maybe chart; it leaves off two billion dollars.